Good morning. Please turn, if you have a Bible, to the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Keep your Bible open in front of you or your app open in front of you. Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Uh, If you're just jumping in today, we are in the midst of seven messages that Jesus delivered to seven churches in the first century. And we're doing two more of those letters this morning. Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Again, this is Jesus speaking. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into a great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching. Who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God to bless the preaching of his word this morning. Father, because you love the world, you love the church. And it was in this love for your church that you inspired your apostle Paul to command Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season. Because we have a tendency to accumulate teachers who say what we want to hear. 
So, Lord, we pray this morning that my words would be your word, that whatever I say would be faithful to it, and that we would receive it as your word with humility and joy, however painful it might be. In Jesus' good name, amen. I'm going to give a second G.K. Chesterton quote in three weeks, which is either a sign of his brilliance or of my laziness. But here it is. This is Chesterton 100 years ago. He said, when Christianity is shattered, it's not merely the vices that are let loose. The vices are indeed let loose, and they do wander, and they do damage. But the virtues are let loose also, and the virtues wander more wildly, and the virtues do more terrible damage. The modern world is full of the old Christian virtues gone mad. As the tide of Christianity recedes from our society, some of it is still laying there in the sand. Although much of that is now cracked and rotting. We still talk a lot today about love and justice and equality and respect. We still talk a lot today about freedom and rights and liberty. But now these words tend to have very different meanings than they did under millennia of influence by the story and the shape of scripture. One of the great Christian virtues, now largely distorted into something entirely different, is tolerance. When it means kindness and respect and patience in matters of conscience, tolerance is a good and Christian thing. But when it means, as it often does today, excusing or legitimizing or embracing what God clearly says is evil and destructive, tolerance, so-called tolerance, has become a sin. Today we're looking at two messages from Jesus to two churches who are both succumbing to this toxic tolerance. Like many Christians and churches today, these two churches were under immense pressure to tolerate and affirm the same kinds of things that their wider society did. Not only because doing so would relieve a lot of suffering for themselves, but also because it would make them socially respectable. Does that sound familiar to you? Both of these churches have pretty much the same problem. But I want to start by looking at each of them on their own before we draw some bigger connections between them and from them to ourselves. In verse 12, Jesus begins his message to a church in a city called Pergamum. Uh, you might remember from last week that we are traveling in a circuit around seven cities in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple dedicated to the imperial cult. And in the first century, Pergamum was still its most fervent outpost. Now, if you weren't here last week, the Roman imperial cult was the ritual and social system of worshiping 
and honoring the Roman emperor and his family as demigods to whom the whole empire looked for peace and for salvation. We said last week that the Roman empire was happy to welcome and incorporate all kinds of gods and all kinds of religious views, no matter how absurd they were or how much they contradicted each other or themselves, as long as you were willing to publicly participate in the imperial cult. Giving honor and worship to the emperor and to the empire through regular religious and social and political actions like burning incense before statues of the emperor or through wearing special clothes and decorating your front door on the birthday of the emperor. Now, besides being this region's epicenter for the Roman imperial cult, Pergamum also had a very busy temple and medical school dedicated to the god of physical healing, as well as a huge and imposing temple on the highest point in the city dedicated to the big kahuna himself, Zeus. Uh, We have evidence that both of these gods in Pergamum were referred to as the Savior. And so for all of these reasons, Jesus repeatedly describes the city as the place where Satan dwells. The place where Satan has his throne. And imagine someone, you're talking to someone, they say, oh, where are you from? I'm from Austin. It's the live music capital of the world. What about you, Antipas? Where are you from? I'm from Pergamum. It's where Satan dwells. That's what Jesus says about this city. One of the major themes of the whole book of Revelation is that uh, behind the Roman Empire, the daily political, social, religious reality of all these Christians, that behind it is a deep and very powerful demonic power at work. Uh, The same applies more broadly to any human institution and especially the state insofar as it behaves viciously and tyrannically. And so the Christians in this church, like many early Christians, are being harmed and persecuted because they refuse to be so-called good citizens by participating in the imperial cult like everybody around them was happy to do. Now before Jesus gets to what's wrong, in verse 13, he actually encourages them and commends them for holding fast through all of this pressure and opposition. Jesus says, even though you live where Satan's throne is, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. He praises them for that. They stayed faithful to Jesus even when a member of their church named Antipas was murdered. Whether it was through mob violence or through official Roman execution. Now it might be hard and uncomfortable for us today to imagine whether you or we would remain faithful to Jesus if one of us were murdered for him. How many of us would show up at church the following week? But of course, this is the terrible reality for millions of Christians around the world today. It's not just some hypothetical scenario for them to think about. So Jesus is encouraging this church in Pergamum. He knows the dark spiritual reality of their city. He knows that they are staying strong for him in the face of violent persecution. But Jesus says in verse 14, even so, there are some real problems in your church. He says, you have false teachers there planting a flag in your midst. He says, they hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak 
to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. He then ties this teaching to the group that we heard about last week in the city of Ephesus, a group called the Nicolaitans. These teachers are encouraging the Christians that it's okay for them to participate in Roman idolatry, the imperial cult, and to commit sexual immorality, Jesus says. In the Bible and in the book of Revelation, uh, the word sexual immorality is a way of describing not only physical acts that violate God's design for sexuality, it is also often a way of describing unfaithfulness to God by worshiping other gods. It's a way of describing spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness. Because Jesus mentions Roman idolatry right here, this spiritual adultery is probably what is mainly in view. But like today... Sexual immorality in many forms was common and accepted in the Roman world as a normal part of socializing and networking, especially for men. Not least as an element of the parties that came with engaging in the imperial cult. These false teachers apparently are teaching Christians that it's okay for them to participate in all of this that you don't have to be so offensive to the wider Roman world, Uh, that they will be more respected, more accepted by the wider world if they go along with what everybody else is doing. And you can imagine the endless justifications for this kind of thing. We've moved beyond the Old Testament law, haven't we, Christians? Jesus was loving and accepting, wasn't he? Isn't faith in Jesus just a personal private matter God doesn't want you to suffer does he he doesn't want your children to lose out on opportunities in life career paths does he and don't you know that if you're so uptight about all this stuff you're not going to get more opportunities to talk to these people about Jesus but Jesus says watch out he says don't tolerate this kind of teaching This mix of idolatry and sexual sin is why Jesus compares this teaching to Balaam. Uh, This is a reference to a story in the Old Testament book of Numbers. We heard the Apostle Paul kind of reiterating that for the Corinthians, uh, talking about the same story. This is a story where a prophet gets paid by a pagan ruler to lead Israel into compromise and weakness. Not, this is really interesting, not by speaking to them, which Balaam tries a few times and fails miserably at, but rather by encouraging them to enjoy this all-you-can-eat buffet of sexual pleasure as part of this big, fun party dedicated to a pagan god. That's the weak point for Israel. That's where they fall. And as right as they're about to enter into the promised land, this physical and spiritual infidelity brings God's judgment on the people of Israel. And now Jesus is threatening the same thing for these false teachers in Pergamum. Remember how he introduced himself in this letter? He's the one who pulls the sword out of his mouth. Jesus is coming, ready to do war. Verse 16. But at the same time, Jesus calls the whole church to repent. He calls the whole congregation to repent for allowing these teachers to start getting a foothold among them. And so you can see the choice for this church is not, are we going to be opposed or not? The choice is, who's going to oppose us? The wider Roman society, 
or Jesus. And Jesus' opposition is far worse. Now, the church in Thyatira, this second church, is facing a similar situation, although everything seems to have uh, advanced more deeply and further there. Thyatira did not have uh, the prominent temples dedicated to Roman gods like Pergamum did, but it was famous for its trades, for its craftsmen, and for its trade guilds, uh, sort of kind of like unions today. Uh, Each of these trade guilds was dedicated to a specific pagan god. If you were not part of the trade guild in the city, you could not work in your field. And part of being in the trade guild meant regular participation in idolatrous feasts and ceremonies, often with the same kinds of debauchery we were talking about before. And like Pergamum, this church is doing many things right. In verse 19, Jesus commends them for being loving. He commends them for engaging in all kinds of acts of service. He encourages them for enduring through all kinds of opposition. Uh, He even says that this church has become more mature than they used to be, that they're doing better than they used to. Uh, To most people, this would probably appear to be a very healthy and vibrant church. Uh, If they brought in a a church leadership consultant, he would say, wow, you guys are doing a great job. But they too, Jesus says, are sinfully tolerant. They are tolerating this false teaching that calls them to compromise on the parts of Christianity that offend the wider world and so are bringing them suffering. In verse 20, Jesus calls out a prophetess there in the church who has already begun to get a following in the church. Jesus calls her Jezebel, which is a reference to the evil pagan queen who introduced the worship of Baal into the life of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, whoever this woman actually was, she's already gained a following in the church whom Jesus later will call her children. Like some deceivers do today, she was apparently promising these Christians a new and a deeper form of Christianity, uh, an advanced form of Christianity. She taught that you were an enlightened Christian if you understood that it was okay and even good for you to participate in the imperial cult and perhaps also the sexual behavior that sometimes went with it. But in verse 24, Jesus says that her so-called deep things are really the deep things of Satan. They're lies that lead only to destruction. Now we hear in verse 21 that Jesus graciously has given this woman time and opportunity to repent of her sins. Jesus is so patient, even towards the most serious sin and failure. But he's not patient forever. He threatens in verse 22 to come and bring great tribulation on this woman and her followers very soon. And he says that when he does that, and if he does that, it's going to demonstrate to all the churches that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus knows our deepest motivations and priorities. He knows the the secrets hidden in the darkness, the skeletons hidden in the closets. He calls our bluff when we make all kinds of excuses about why it's actually okay for me to compromise with the world, why it's actually okay for me in this situation to skirt his good and his wise commands for our lives and for our churches. But to everybody else in the church, to those who have not started following this teacher, 
Jesus simply says, just hold fast to what you have until I come. Just hold fast. Not all of them are going to suffer a dramatic martyrdom like Antipas did in Pergamum. But it's encouraging, isn't it? That even just enduring through the suffering and the opposition for the sake of Jesus and his word, even that is a victory. Even that is a conquest. And Jesus encourages them and us in that painful slog of endurance. Well, so what? What can we learn from these two churches so long ago in a very different part of the world? What can we learn from them as they face not just external pressure, but internal pressure to conform, to participate in the imperial cult as a way of making their lives easier and their churches more respectable? The first thing is that some kinds of tolerance are dangerous. Some forms of what we call grace or love are neither gracious nor loving. In spite of their many honorable and many and genuine achievements, Jesus calls both of these churches to repent for allowing false teachers into their churches. He threatens judgment then and now against churches and leaders who refuse to remove the cancer of compromise and corruption. Now, church discipline, of course, can be abused. Of course it can. You hear stories about it all the time. But I think it's pretty obvious that the average American church, even the average PCA church, is afraid to exercise church discipline at all because we're afraid of upsetting people who very much enjoy living like the world does. But as you can see in these letters, church discipline is an act of love, not just for the church, but most of all for Jesus. So some kinds of tolerance are actually dangerous and destructive. But the other thing here that we need to see are the ways that we might be tempted to compromise with the world and with its idols in the same kind of way that these churches were back then. Just like in Pergamum and Thyatira, today the devil can do some damage through actual and perhaps violent opposition from the world. He did it to Antipas. But just like then, today the devil can do a lot more damage just by convincing Christians to go along with the world, to start looking more like them. Most of the time, we don't even realize we're doing this. Compromise feels natural. It's appealing. It can feel loving even. And just like then, today there are all kinds of false teachers lined up ready to assure these Christians that actually in this new and deeper form of Christianity, we are realizing after 2,000 years that the Bible actually teaches that doing these kinds of things is okay and even good. And that actually we'll reach a lot more people if we are willing to accept them and promote them or at least not say anything about them. There are all kinds of ways that Christians today are tempted to look and to act like the wider American society. Materialism, hedonism, jingoism, overeating, overdrinking, 
being therapeutically fixated on my personal happiness and fulfillment, obsessing over politicians as saviors or villains, all those things are real dangers and they are real sins. But when it comes to being pressured to use language and affirm behaviors that are obviously at odds with Scripture under threat of losing your relationships and your opportunities and your jobs, there is nothing, I don't think, that holds a candle to our society's religious devotion to the rainbow flag. Like the Roman imperial cult, today's rainbow version of it has its own public displays of loyalty. The decorations, the holidays, even rituals like sharing your pronouns. Like the Roman ritual of burning a little stick of incense to a statue of Caesar, these rituals can appear to be or be justified as insignificant, as private, as ultimately loving, but they're actually loaded with all kinds of religious and social and political meaning as insignificant as they may appear or be described as. Just like in the first century, most people now assume that these things are just who we are. Very few people today have been consciously convinced by this sexual revolution that sex is essential to who you are. Almost nobody was argued into that position, but nearly everybody believes it, including many Christians. It now just seems obvious that this is true. And so even just failing to go along with it, let alone actually criticizing it, is enough to invite accusations that you are no different than the vile racists of Jim Crow. It is enough to invite serious and ominous questions about whether you are really one of us. And while it may be technically illegal for your employer to fire you because you hold to traditional biblical teaching on sexuality, many of you know what it could very well lead to if you openly affirmed it in your office or on your social media. Many of you are being very careful of what you say because of this. Many of us are having to figure out how to shrewdly keep our heads down we have to relearn what Jesus meant when he sent his disciples into a hostile world and said, you need to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. But the need to be shrewd is not the same thing as the need to compromise. Shrewdness may be necessary. Compromise never is. We have to hold fast to Jesus, which means holding fast to the teaching of the Bible as his word. You do not have Jesus without the Bible. And while we're glad that this is not going to cost any of us our lives anytime soon, even now we realize for some of us this may cost us a lot. Holding fast to Jesus really is a battle. And much of what these letters and what this book is trying to show us is that this battle is not merely a human battle. Even though we often feel it and experience it 
through very human pains and human realities like next-door neighbors and HR departments. We need to see that the battle to hold fast to Jesus is fundamentally a cosmic spiritual battle with the devil himself. But Jesus promises both of these churches and he promises us. He promises to give us victory. Victory in these battles, as terrifying as they might be. To Pergamum, he promises to give the conqueror the hidden manna, which is a way, I think, of saying that he will give us his very self in sustaining us through this wilderness of suffering, just like God sustained the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings. Jesus also promises to give the white stone with a new name written on it, which might be a reference to the stones that were used in this part of the world to admit people to special ceremonies or that were used to cast verdicts of not guilty in a trial. The point is that Jesus gives us a new identity, just like he did for Abraham and for Jacob and for Peter. They got new names. In Jesus, we have a new life, a new direction and a new reality, even if to the outside world we appear to be total losers and scoundrels. And to Thyatira, Jesus promises not only to give the conqueror the morning star, which is a reference to himself that he'll pick up at the end of the book of Revelation, but also to give his churches his authority to rule the nations, not by actual physical conquest, But one of the most important points of the book of Revelation is that the way that Jesus' church conquers the world is by suffering for him as his faithful witnesses. Jesus feeds us with himself. Manna, now hidden to the world. He re-identifies us in himself. A new name known only to ourselves. He draws us into his resurrection life the first star rising in the morning, standing against the darkness. He grants us his rule over the nations, suffering in the nations for him. Holding fast to Jesus will bring suffering. But our crucified Lord gives us so much more than whatever we lose. He gives us Himself, as the conqueror of death, he must win the battle. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice and delight even to be reminded that Jesus is the conquering king, the one who has conquered death through death the one who is conquering suffering through his own suffering, the one who equips us and strengthens us to suffer with him and in him as his faithful witnesses. He goes before us as the faithful witness in this world. And whatever hostility we face because of him is hostility against him. And so we ask, Father, that you would strengthen us and encourage us to remain strong in him, whatever it might look like in this world, in any other part of the world. We're ashamed for the ways, Lord, that we are so timid and so afraid, for the ways that we flinch 
at even so little suffering when we know how much people around the world are suffering for following you. Help us to be more like them. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be joyful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.